0: put your finger in two places mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5 of course it might be on the same page Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5. I'd like to start with this uh, with this question what is the Gospel? We started asking this question last week, what is the gospel? Is it simply a set of propositions? Is it just a set of facts for us to, to know, to say, to speak, to make sure we verbalize in a prayer, to make sure our kids can recite Is it something to simply mentally assent to, to, to kind of uh, agree with? affirm, I agree with those statements. I hope we realize that Satan agrees that Jesus died to save sinners. That Jesus died to reconcile them to himself, and he died to pay the price for the wrath of God upon them. So what is the gospel? Is it just simply the Roman's road? Is it, again, uh, just a string of verses that we can put together and recite? I'm I'm not picking on these things. I hope you know that. But like another example I would give is you know, one of the churches I went to, we had the, the faith program. I don't know if the faith visitation program, or and then another church we had the the grow program, and and it was basically you memorize a set of propositions and then you go visit people at their doors and share this set of propositions. And uh, again not not that there's anything wrong with that, but is that the totality of the gospel and is that all of there is? I think where some of us have probably experienced or are currently experiencing this uh, I think very limited understanding of the gospel in kind of two different areas, just very briefly, one would be in legalism. Legalism can approach the gospel as nothing more than a set of propositions. like the the gospel can be nothing to the legalist more than a set of facts that they mentally, supposedly, agree with. A set of ideas and nothing more. The other example, maybe where some of us experience the gospel as, uh, as nothing more than a set of ideals or a set of facts, is uh, in the intellectual pursuit of Christianity. Christianity. This is especially true in our kind of theological camp among particularly younger uh Christians, where oftentimes this has been this this was a bit of my experience, and I know it's been a many uh experience of many of your guys' uh past, where it seems like when you walk into particularly if you think about reformed theology that It feels like for the first time the intellect is actually engaged, at least well. Uh, That that the scriptures are approached more logically, meaning we don't try to dance around typically passages that are hard to preach. And recently I was, someone told me they were scouring our sermon history to see what we had Preached on and how we handled certain texts, and so they went to a passage, We went to a sermon on Ephesians one to see how we handled the term predestination and uh, and election and and such. And they were encouraged that wow, they didn't skip over it or they didn't try to walk around it or try to excuse it away or it was just logically handled. Here's what the text says. Here's how we how we deal with that. And. And so what happens is it can be easy for us to just mentally engage the Scriptures, or the Gospel for that matter, devoid of anything else. And the danger for you in that sense, or in that category, is that Christianity, even the, the depth of your mental understanding, is actually reduced to, again, simply a set of propositions. Uh, and I think again it's a it's a dangerous place to be and I'm not for the record I'm not pitting against each other like this uh intellect and heart experience I'm not saying that they're mutually exclusive, but the issue is when we when we go to think about what is the gospel how where uh, like are we limiting that um, do we have a good rich understanding of the gospel, both for our own sake and for the sake of the world around us. Last week, we talked about Jesus' authority in the series on what is the gospel. We talked about his authority, that his very words have power, that he just speaks, right? I mean, you understand that creation happened by the power of his word, right? Let there be light, and there was light, and let there be land. There's land. Let there be water. Like, he just speaks and it happens. And then we see this exemplified in Jesus's life when he's incarnated on earth where he's doing the same thing. He is, he is speaking new creation into existence. Let there be healing in this body. Let there be newness in this man's heart. Let the demons shudder and run from me so that the way this man was meant to live can come forth. Jesus speaks his, he has authority over sickness. He has authority to forgive sins even to speak on the very on, on behalf of his father as he and the father are one. And then we talked last week how he has his authority calls us to follow him. Not just that he has the authority to call us to follow him, but his authority Actively does that. His authority draws us to his very self. And then as we think about sharing the gospel, obviously there's there's application for us as we live out the gospel, but application as we speak the gospel to others. So as we think about sharing the gospel, so Jesus has authority, his words have authority to command the lives of those around you, whether they follow him or not, whether they agree with the same set of propositions or not, his words have authority over them as well. And do we really believe that when we engage in conversation with coworkers, classmates, our lost children, our spouses, do we believe that His words have authority over everyone? I mean, we should praise God that this is the case. But how many times do we enter into a conversation simply wanting to share some flattened version of the gospel? When I I think about uh, even when I do our elder interviews, I, I'm trying to rethink this for, for new members. And How would you share the gospel in two minutes? And a lot of times what I'm even looking for is just a, a recitation of a few short facts. And, and, and maybe that's a good starting place. But How many times do we, when going to share the gospel, think, okay, I just need to make sure I cover this, 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 and this? And what I'm wanting to ask the question is is that enough? Or is that all there is? I believe these facts are true. I believe these propositions are true. The Romans Road is true. Yes, we can, uh, in a sense, kind of encapsulate or kind of surmise or uh, recap the gospel in some, some string of truths. But is that all there is? Is that it? Like, Do we understand that the gospel is so much more dynamic and multidimensional? I don't want to shift gears here too much, but First John tells us this. Uh, we love him because he first loved us. For both the legalist, the intellectual, and the lost, the examples I gave ahead of time, we are, if we were to follow him, submit to His authority, we must first know and believe that He loves us. That fact alone helps us understand that a set of propositions is not merely enough. A mental agreement with a set of propositions is not merely enough. We love Him because He first loved us. So a knowing of his loving us and then us responding and loving him are also a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I'm not making this about us and I don't think that passage makes it about us. It's not us at the center of the universe and he loved us. No, God is supreme in his glory and his lovableness, if you will, and yet he cares about us. Even in the passage we're about to read, Jesus commissions the healed to go tell them how much I have cared for you. Go tell them how much I have loved you. Now the explicit word to use is go tell them how much mercy I have shown you. Do you see that? Christ's love for His people is at the beginning of the Gospel. God's love for His people. Then comes the mercy in the Gospel. Go tell of my mercy. And then out of God's mercy for His people comes the cross. And the thing is, is that's usually where we start our Gospel process proposition, recitation, there. But there's stuff before it, a lot, that's really crucial. I hope you're starting to see some of the picture. Listen, Jesus's authority must be coupled with his deep, loving care. That's really my point for today. If you're to take one thing from today is that Jesus' authority must be coupled with His deep loving care. In the gospel is both things. He has the authority to speak. He has the authority to do what He intends to do. He has the power to make it happen. But it is done not at all apart from His deep, loving care. And here's then the reality for you and I. If you and I are going to joyfully and happily submit to the authority of God in the Gospel of Christ, we must believe that He deeply cares for us. That He deeply cares for us. Let me start in Mark 5, and we'll go to 4 for the second half today. But Mark 5, verse 2 through 20 says this, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he winched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Father, as we study your word this morning, may, may we walk away proclaiming in the places you have put us and are calling us to, may we proclaim how much Christ has done for us. And may you open the eyes of the people around us that they might look upon your doings in our life and marvel. Father, for your glory. Amen. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus cares about your inner struggles. Jesus deeply cares about your inner struggles. Now when I, just to define terms here, I think of struggles. It's a multifaceted term. I'm using a pretty broad term here that could include Sinful inner struggles. It could include the inner fruit of sinful struggles. It could also include non- or amoral struggles. It could include the inner struggles caused by the sinfulness of a, another person. The hurt on the inside from another person or situation or so, so it's, a, it's a multifamily, using a very broad term there, I think Jesus cares for it all. In this passage we have Jesus has traveled across the sea after many hours of teaching and now he gets to the shore and Jesus steps out of the boat and is immediately verbally attacked by an extremely mentally ill man. Let's just pause for a second and ask the question, How might you and I respond in this moment? We've gotten out of the car after a long drive, and we are assaulted verbally by a mentally ill person. How might you and I respond? I, I don't maybe it's something like this. I don't have time for this. I'm just trying to get I'm tired. Or this is scary. What am I supposed to do? I, I, that, would, that would probably be me. Uh, get angry at the man. Because we've been inconvenienced, well, well, once you get a little bit better, then I can help you. I, you know, I've got more important things right now to deal with, but Jesus doesn't do any of those things. What does Jesus do? He engages the situation. He engages the brokenness of this man's life. He pauses i I, I don't Mark is showing us. Like this stepping out of the boat, and, and, and he just saw, we're going to see when we go back to Mark 4, is that, that Jesus had been sleeping in the midst of the storm. I don't think, as we'll talk about later, I don't think that's because Jesus was like, oh, it's a storm, whatever, my God's got it. I think Jesus was tired. I think he was worn out. I think Mark is showing us his uh, humanity. That he's tired, he's exhausted, he's been doing this, and then he gets out of the boat, he's been traveling, he's been speaking, and, and now... He engages the situation even in the midst of his tiredness. He engages, he understands the depth of the situation. He understands that that this man is being consumed by severe inner struggles. Now notice, Mark says in verse 8, For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. That is why the man starts verbally attacking Jesus. Because Jesus pursues him P- jesus pursues the problem he goes after the problem and then the assaults start coming back towards christ it's because jesus was attacking was going after the thing he, that he cared about most in the moment and that was the inner brokenness of this man Here's what this tells us. As soon as Jesus got off the boat, saw this man, he immediately pursues this man by dealing with his inner struggles. Again, we're going to see this. We've already seen this once last week, and we'll see this multiple times. But Jesus, Jesus cares certainly about the physical, but he cares deeply about the inner. The inner struggles. A couple of things I want us to note in this passage about this inner struggle and this man's experience is that inner struggles always isolate us from community. Inner struggles lead to isolation from community. From communing with other people, from communing even with God. And say, alright, well, that, that's, this is one example of this man. Where else do you see this? It's in the garden. What do you think happens? What's happening with Adam and Eve? Two things happen with Adam and Eve that speak to this point. After they sin and God comes to walk in the garden, what does Adam and Eve do? They hide. They've been enjoying community with God. Now they sin. They've got these inner struggles. What do they do? They hide from God. They isolate themselves from communing with God. What else happens with Adam and Eve that resembles the same thing? The fig leaves. What's happening with the fig leaves? Oh, it's just they realized they were naked. Oh, no, 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 no. There's brokenness now between Adam and Eve. There is shame and guilt And so what do they do? This inner struggle leads them to hide themselves from each other. Inner struggles always isolate us from community. It leads us to move away. This man, it says, is living alone among the tombs night and day. Night and day. Inner struggles always move toward isolation. Isolation. I say this with, with heaviness. If, if you watch someone who begins to withdraw from the community of the body, it's because most of the time, because the, if not all the time, I'm, I'll leave, I'll leave it at most of the time. Because they have inner struggles. that they're dealing with and moving in their hearts further and further away. Inner struggles destroy our relationships. And they keep us from relationships. Listen, I, I've watched it in this body. The people who often struggle the most with deep, rich gospel-driven relationships are the ones with the most inner sin and struggles. And what makes that worse is what kind of adds to the fire, if you will, like throwing gasoline onto the fire, is that if you've grown in any measure of legalistic living, then you've learned how to hide it. You've learned how to just protect it, where you can kind of just be apart just enough, so that no one would question. But Jesus understands that we are always consumed by something. This man was consumed by something, but let's talk about us for a few moments. Always consumed with something, whether it's the desire to succeed, a desire to be right, a desire to be liked, a desire to be in control, a desire to be comfortable, a desire for money. Name it. And when those things become our source of joy, happiness, fulfillment, they become a legion of inner demons. They become... legion, for we are many. And when those inner demons take control and they don't get what they want, we're driven mad. We become crazy. Now listen, some of you are crazy in this sense and you don't even realize it. You think everything is fine. But you live among the tombs. Day and night. Now you think maybe that you have everyone else convinced that you're a fine. When in reality the only one that's convinced is you. But by God's grace... There are people around you that, that are praying for the chance to pursue you. And maybe they need to get over their laziness and pursue you, or over their own idolatries and pursue, or maybe they're waiting for a chance to graciously and gently get behind the madness. Yeah, I can think of one particularly good example just in our church's history, where I would say there's been a person who has fit this category very clearly, consumed by their desires, becoming filled with a legion of demons, and driven into isolation to live among the tombs. And by God's grace, the people around this person got out of the boat and pursued this person. And by God's great mercy, after months of prayer and exhortation, the person begins to walk in humble repentance. And is to this day. Let me ask you this question. Are, are you one of these people consumed by your inner struggle? And particularly, are you one of these people who is consumed by and don't even realize it don't see it or or you do but you deny it how far I'm asked this question that uh, would be a helpful uh, uh, assessment question how far into isolation do you live not saying this how much time do you spend with other people that's not the question I'm asking because you could be around people all the time but how much of you is actually known by other people? How much of it is hidden? Now here's how we're prone to handle these, this, this inner struggle of ours. Some of us have been walking with these inner demons for decades. With overcoming little to zero. Or maybe just now you're going, wow, is that really what's going on? Is this me? And listen, we all have inner struggles. This, this relates to all of us to some measure, whether we realize it or not. But here's how we tend to, bl- tend to handle these inner struggles. There's one I have two ways, or maybe a little bit of both. One is this, we blame it on other things. We like to blame our inner struggles on other things. Maybe you've said, well, it's just my emotions. It's just the way I feel. What is that? I'm blaming it on something else. Or you've said it's just the way I am. It's the authentic me. That's such a catchphrase in our culture today. Or you've said it's it's the fault of my circumstances. It has driven me to this. Or you've said why can't everyone around me just get their act together? It's their fault. We blame it on other things. Or two, we just turn it off. We just turn it off. We suppress it. Just don't talk about it. And if we pretend like it's not there, it won't be there. Another phrase for this uh, would be like escapism. Where we escape into fantasy thinking there will be rest there. I mean, it could be things like drinking, sex, drugs, both legal and illegal. Illegal. It could be TV, reading, your children, homeschooling, your job, Facebook. Getting the A. It could even be causes that we give ourselves to that seem to be like for the good of other people. All of these things can serve as forms of escapism. Where we, we can just give ourselves to this so I don't have to deal with the inner Struggles. I, for me, I, I can do this with church ministry. Like, as, as good as being a pastor and the things that I have to give myself to, that can be a form of escapism for me. Just like anybody else's career, you can give yourself, give your time, your energy, your mentals to deal with these things so that I don't have to deal with what's going on inside of my mind and my heart. And when we handle these issues these ways, No wonder we go decades without overcoming these things. And here's the deal. They don't just sit in neutral. Inner struggles, sin or otherwise, don't sit in neutral. They're moving ahead full speed. But let's ask this question, how does Jesus handle this issue? Because that's what's really important He understands that if the man's demons are chased away, he understands something very important. That something will fill the void in the man's heart. If he chases it away, something else will fill the hole. So Jesus says in verse 19, and he did not permit the man to go with him, but... Instead, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had mercy on you. What does Jesus want the man to replace the inner struggles with? Faith, belief that the Lord has cared for him. That the Lord loves him. That the Lord has shown him mercy. Think, think, about, think about what's happening here. Whether sin or otherwise, the man is possessed by inner demons. A legion of them. And Jesus categorically says, What I have done for you... Is merciful. I've set you free from this sin struggle or otherwise, this inner struggle, and it has been mercy to you. What's that mean? It's something that you didn't deserve. It's something that I had to work in you to bring about that I didn't have to do. What does that show us? The Lord's deep and abiding care for this man and his inner struggles. You see, us Christians don't have to deny reality. We don't have to blame it on others. We don't have to to shift the, the blame to circumstances. We don't have to suppress the reality. Instead, we can run to Christ and in the process face the full reality of our brokenness because we know that Christ can handle it all. but not just that he can handle it all but that he loves us and cares for us enough to handle it all you see we can escape the burdens of this world in a biblical way into the into Christ our refuge He's the rest for our souls in this weary land, nothing else. And when you believe he cares, we will leave isolation. Look at the passage. When our inner man is dealt with, when his inner struggles are dealt with, what does he do? He begs for genuine community, verse 18. And as he was getting as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man Who had been possessed with demons, just in case you had forgotten who we're talking about here, begged, begged, he begged for community with his Savior. You see, you see, it's a reversal of isolation. It's the reversal of the brokenness of community. It's a reversal of the garden in a sense. The man moves from being alone to wanting the company of Christ. Matter of fact, the idea of begging here is the idea he wanted that and nothing else. I want to be and abide with my Savior and nothing else. This is what I want. Why? Because he knows how much Christ has just cared for him. He may not be able to put it into words, and so that's why Jesus describes him, you should go and speak these words, but he knows experientially this is what's just happened. I've been deeply loved and deeply cared and set free, and I want nothing else but to be in community with this person who has just set me free. Listen, when we experience true care, true love, we want more of it. It draws our soul out of hiding, out of isolation. Then look what Jesus does. We've already talked about this briefly. Jesus commissions the delivered. He sends him to be an ambassador to tell others about the mercy that God has shown. He wants this Thing that has now taken root in the man's heart to now overflow from his heart to other people. We should ask this question. Do we know how much Christ cares for us? For you, child of God, do you know how much Christ cares for you? That He is dealing with Not just that he, he has the power and authority to, but that he wants to deal with your inner turmoil. That he cares enough to draw you out and draw you to himself. Do you understand that He uses your brothers and sisters in Christ to draw you out? Do you understand that He uses the Scriptures to draw you out? Do you understand that the last thing you want when your inner man goes south is for someone else to press into your life? Indeed, when you get defensive, do you know that it's just simply an affirmation that something is wrong on the inside? Get out of there. Don't touch that part. But, oh, child of God, Christ loves you and cares for you. He cares for our inner person. He cares for our soul, our heart, our affections. He cares for it all. Let's go to Mark 4, 37 through 41. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filled, or sorry, it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, you know, just a thought real quick, on the cushion, right? I love Mark's, like, description. My wife pointed this out to me. He's asleep on the cushion. Thank you, Mark. And as they're about to die, Jesus is on a cushion. Jesus cares about your circumstances. Jesus cares about your circumstances. I, I know we talk all the time, and, and we're going to continue doing the same thing, that you know, circumstances are here, and the sin, that those things don't cause us to sin, and so on and so forth, but they apply heat, and yes, st- all that's still true, But that doesn't mean that Christ doesn't care for our circumstances. He deeply cares for our circumstances. Specifically, in this passage, we're thinking about our outer dangers. The dangers that surround us in this life. So here, Jesus and His disciples are traveling across the sea. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat. But Jesus is sleeping through the storm. So it's a storm, Jesus is night-night, and the disciples are freaking out. Now, is it because that Jesus is, simply isn't worried about the storm, like he's totally a cool cat, trusting God? Now, I think he would trust God completely through the storm, so I, I'm not denying that, but I, I think, again, we have Mark showing us Christ's humanity in juxtaposition of this, where these guys, the disciples, they're awake, they're freaking out. Here's the question. Why are they so worried? What's happening? Now remember, many of these were professional fishermen, right? This wouldn't have been their first time at sea. This wouldn't have been their first time in a storm. I think this helps clue us into the fact that the storm is really bad. Bad enough that they think they're about to die. The wind is blowing, the waves are crashing. As a matter of fact, the, the Texas specifically, the boat was already filling. Filling with what? Water, right? Down goes the ship. I would be worried too. Like Titanic is about to go down. The boat is creaking, the lightning is striking, they're scared out of their minds. Their circumstances are absolutely terrible. But read the text, why are they so worried? Here's the question, do they go to Jesus thinking he can calm the storm? I don't think they do. Because at the end of the text it says what? Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They're terribly surprised that he could calm the storm. So they don't, they don't go down to the ship, Jesus, Jesus, wake up, wake up. We need you to, to stop the storm so that we don't die. That's not what they're going. They're not expecting him to do that. They've not seen that type of miracle yet. Why? Because we see they're surprised that he does this. that he Not that he does it, that he wants to do it, but they're surprised that he can do it. That even the wind and the waves and the storm obey him. The sea, they say, obeys him. They're surprised. So they, they don't go to the bottom asking Jesus. But look at verse 38. But he was in the stern. Again, Mark is awesome. Asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, can you come calm the storm? What's he say? What do they say? Teacher, Do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? A picture of much of our human experience is given right in these verses. We live in a world where the outside dangers are constant where circumstances are constantly tossing and turning competition for success financial insecurity the stomach bug natural disasters career hazards racial hurts political disasters cancers and other such physical brokenness and when we face them think about it, what what is at least one of our primary natural responses when we face dangers in this world our natural response is to ask this question at least most of the time the leaders that i have placed my trust in concerning this situation are they trustworthy do they care It's why we see so often when people's lives are in shambles, they begin to blame their leaders, right? The president, Congress, the mayor, your boss, CEO, your parents, your pastors. Why? Because we want to know in these moments do you care? When Adam runs in his first few moments of shame and guilt, what's his response? It's to run and hide. Why? Because he doesn't know whether God's going to care for him. Listen, the disciples are stressed out and wanting to know if the one whom they have given their trust, their faith, their care to is someone who truly cares about their well-being. They want to know, does Jesus care for us? And what does Jesus do? What does he do? 39, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still, circumstance change. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He uses His authority and power to address their fears and anxieties because He cares. And how did the disciples respond at this point? 41. And they were filled with great fear (laughs) and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? that even the wind and the sea obey Him. They're not sure who Jesus really is. I mean, they know His name, they, they've seen what He's done so far, but they're going, oh my goodness, who is this? They thought Jesus was a leader. They thought He was someone who could forgive sins, and uh, at least they've seen some of this, and someone who could heal a paralytic, but, but this is something even more, something extremely different. Jesus doesn't only heal the broken and forgive sins, but He speaks and the mighty ocean obeys. Again, I don't think they were reaching out to Jesus because they thought he could calm the storm. Right? Jesus, just would you just get up and do your thing? I mean, now maybe after this point, as they face other storms, they're like, Jesus, please get up and, and take care of this, that'd be great. But at this point, they were upset, bothered, anxious because they didn't think He cared. Listen, we panic when we forget He cares. We panic when we forget He cares. That's when... I got to take control. That's when I got to go get comfort this way or find peace over here. That's when I I got to do this thing on my own or that's when I got to get angry so I can make sure that I'm cared for here. That's when I get defensive. That's that's when I sink into depression. That's when I see nothing but despair because I've forgotten that he cares. Pay careful attention. Under the fruit of worry concerning their circumstances comes their question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are dying? Do you not care that certain death could be 10 seconds from now. Do you not care that we have a family? Do you not care that we have things to get done? Even for your kingdom, Father, teacher, do you not care? We just stop right there. It's right there that all such things go wrong for us. It's at that moment that we, again, take matters into our hands, become anxious, spiral into depression, or overtaken by inner demons, or succumb to the pressures of our circumstances. It's in that moment right there when we ask the question, Teacher, do you not care? It was the same lie posed to Adam and Eve in the garden. It was just in different words he doesn't really care for you. He's withholding this from you. Go get it yourself. He doesn't really care. And for a moment, Adam and Eve said, I don't know that he actually cares. And they eat Mark 4.40 says this, He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? They were afraid because, again, they still had no faith. Faith in what? Faith that Jesus cared. Faith that He was who He said He was and that He loved them like He said He loves them. They were struggling and anxious because their faith was not in Christ. It was in their circumstances. It was in their human leaders. It was in their ability to control. They didn't believe, or at least they were struggling in this moment, to believe that Jesus cared. Let me read to you a quote from a guy named Danny Aiken. He says this, It pains me greatly to see myself in the disciples until they see the resurrected Christ and fully understand what He did for them on the cross, they are going to struggle. They're going to struggle. Let's give them some credit here. They've not seen the cross. Back to the quote. We, in contrast, have no excuse. We know Jesus is all-powerful and all-knowing God. We know He has taken care of all our sin. We know He rose from the dead. We know He can be trusted no matter what. Trials and difficulties are divine appointments to strengthen our faith. So why are we still afraid? Do we still have no faith? So I ask you again this question what is the gospel what is the gospel yes Jesus has supreme authority that his very words can make the storm change its course his very words cause the paralytic and his body to function correctly and for him to get up and walk again his very words speak as God in the forgiving of sins But if all we have is a Savior who is authoritative and powerful, we still have nothing more than a distant set of propositions. But what we see in these passages is that we have a gospel that lovingly cares for us. His people. His bride. But here's the question. How do we ultimately know He cares deeply for us? How? The other John 3.16 passage says this, By this we know, love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That He went to the cross for us. He laid his life down. This is how we know he cares. We believe this. This tells us everything we need to know about the reality that our Savior cares. And then think, think about, back to this, what happens in this first John. He's laid down his life for us we ought to do what? Commune with others. Commune with the body of Christ. Commune, a reversal of isolation driven toward community. He came ready to die because He cares for His people. He cares for your inner struggles. He cares for your circumstances. Brothers and sisters, He cared enough to pay the price for all your sin, every ounce on the inside and out. He came to heal the brokenness and make your life whole someday. Church, He deeply cares for you. Let's pray. Fathers, we are about to partake in the Lord's Supper this morning. What a divine appointment for us to now, for the next few minutes, get to reflect specifically through the ordinance of the Lord's Supper on the fact that You deeply care for Your people. That You loved us enough to come and give Your life for us to lay it down and not not just to to die but to bear the wrath of God for our sins that our greatest need would be taken care of and that is for us to be made right with you father that we might be adopted sons and daughters now treasured possessions by the king now people who are safe from every storm People whose eternity is secured in the loving care of the cross. Father, thank You for Your rescuing work for us. I'm so thankful that You chose this way to display Your great glory to the cosmos. The rescuing of us sinners Caring for our deepest needs, both inside and out. And healing us, and bringing us, caring for us, loving us. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to partake in the Lord's Supper this morning. I want to just remind you that if there is sin that um, you're harboring or holding on to, confess it now. Confess it. If there's inner struggles right now, confess it. Bring it to the Lord. He knows all about them, but for your own good, speak it. telling, asking for help, asking for humility. And then I would encourage you in the post like afterwards or maybe even now as, as we're communing together around the Lord's table go to someone else and share it with them. I, that might feel awkward to you but do it. Say I, I've got this struggle. Will you pray with me? Will you help me? May God bless our time.